All right, good morning, Jacob's Well. My name is Tyler Stowell. I'm on the uh, teaching and discipleship team here. Uh, my wife, Allison, and I also serve uh, with Athletes in Action, which is a Christian sports ministry at Rutgers, one of the external partners with Jacob's Well. Uh, excited to be here. If you're new, what a passage uh, for your first time here. Just hold on. We'll kind of explain some of it, and we'll leave the unexplainable uh, unexplained. Uh, so, yeah, we've been going through Revelation, been, been walking through the first, we're going to end up with the first five chapters, looking at these seven letters that John, there's some debate about which John it is, most scholars think he's the Apostle John, Jesus is probably arguably closest friend, the one that wrote these, given to him by Jesus, seven letters to, to churches in the first century. And we're done with those letters now, but the next couple of chapters really still bookend uh, this first chunk of Revelation and, and clue us into uh, some of the current realities that were going on at that time. Revelation 6, if you really want to uh, jump into some sci-fi stuff, Revelation 6 is kind of when the crazy stuff really starts. So it is not actual fiction, don't hear me saying that, but, uh, but Revelation 4 and 5, they still go in this kind of first chunk here. A uh, couple of things to remember as we look at this. Uh, let's put that first slide up. Uh, Scott, Pastor Scott has shown us this before, that this is what's happening in Revelation. Um, the, the New Testament, second half, second, third, last third of the Bible, really talks about two eras of world history, the present evil age and the age to come. The present evil age um, is everything before Christ and moves into where we are now. The age to come is still to come uh, in the future. And yet we live in this overlap of the already, but not yet. God's kingdom, ushered in by Jesus, is already here. He has already come. He's already begun to establish his kingdom. He's already died and resurrected. You see the empty, the empty tomb there. But we're not yet fully living into that. And so these letters that we had looked at, uh, we're talking about more entering into the, the present evil age, speaking into that. And yet now, Revelation 4, Revelation 5, are going to start to lift the veil on the age to come. And we're going to get a look into the throne room of heaven of what's actually happening. What may, must take place after this is even how John leads off in this chapter. What must take place after this? So Revelation 4 starts to move us into the, to the age to come. Now, a couple of reminders. Revelation is not a, a hidden map so that we can somehow figure out and predict the future uh, of when certain things are going to happen. That was actually kind of a big no-no for God's people way back in the day. They got in big trouble for trying to worship other gods that claim to predict the future. God knows the future. We don't need to know uh, all the details of the future. He gives us what we need, and, and we sit content or try to sit content with that as much as we may like to it, to know the future. Um, this genre of literature is called apocalyptic. That big fancy word doesn't mean zombies and all that kind of craziness. It means lifting the veil. It, it's uncovering something. It's pulling back a curtain to say, hey, here's what's going on behind the scenes. Here's what's happening in the spiritual realm that we may not always be able to see. John gets uh, an awesome view into that. And so it's an opening up, it's a pulling back, it's a breaking through. This book, Revelation, is the revelation by Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ. That's ultimately what it's about. It's not a, it's not a crystal ball to look forward. Um, it's a new set of glasses so that we can see and understand that things are not always as they seem to the visible eye. We actually get to see behind things because the reality is life is hard and sometimes 
it's hard to believe that Revelation 4 is actually true. And so we need to keep coming back to passages like this. Put up that other quote. I got this from, a lot of today came from a book that, that Pastor Scott let me look at. It's called Discipleship on the Edge. This guy, Daryl Johnson, wrote this. I just read one chapter on, on Revelation 4, and I want to read the whole thing because it was really good, really well-written, really accessible. It's not like a super scholarly, like, seminary-type book. It's, it, it met me where I was at, kind of right, right here on the ground. But this is a, a quote that I love that he said about this reality of things are not as they seem. Scripture never promises that the visible circumstances of life will proclaim the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty just meaning that God's in, in control. The visible circumstances often call the sovereignty of God into question. That is when we need to put on Revelation 4 glasses. Life is going to challenge us with the aid of the enemy to say, hey, God's not actually in control. He's not on the throne. And Revelation 4 is an emphatic uh, rebuttal to that, that he is indeed on the throne. And so Jesus is pulling back the curtain. He's opening the door, giving John a view into what's happening in the spiritual realm, which absolutely intersects our physical world here and now. So we have to remember that, that this isn't a, a hidden map for what, uh, when, and details. It's a revelation about Jesus and the fact that he's on the throne. Secondly, as we read Revelation, we have to remember it's full of imagery. It's full of all kinds of imagery. Um, it's not a crystal ball revealing, another quote from this guy, esoteric secrets. Uh, I had to look up that word, esoteric. And it, it's, it's kind of, the way that I got it was it's kind of like a um, Oh, what's the, the phrase that I'm looking for? It's kind of an inside, not joke, but it's kind of some inside information. That's not what this is, that only those that are in the club can understand all the things about Revelation, and if you get it, then it all makes sense, and now you have your hidden map to predict the future. No, that's not what it's about. It's, it's imagery to try to explain not how to avoid the harsh realities of earth, but how to endure the harsh realities of earth following after Jesus. The thing we have to remember 2,000 years after this was written is... Um, Imagery, and we're not going to use that one yet, imagery makes the most sense to the original audience, right? John is writing to a specific group of people in a specific time at a specific place, and things that he says are going to make the most sense to them because they're going to be current contemporary realities. We have to do a little bit of digging, a little bit of research to try to understand some of those things while recognizing they're just not going to make quite as much sense to us 2,000 years later. Example, uh, let's say that 1,000 years from now, I don't know what the future of football is going to look like uh, in the National Football League or college football. I don't know what that's going to look like 10 years from now. But 1,000 years from now, let's say someone stumbles across this, this, uh, this reality that there was a man named Brady who once, and see, even some of you right now, you, you caught a little bit of that phrase, and others of you are like, I don't understand why everyone else chuckled, and that almost makes my case in point. Uh, but this man named Brady used to be a patriot, and then he became a buccaneer. People are going to look at that and, wow, this guy, like, I don't know who this guy was, but he, like, he used to be, must have, like, done something important for his country, loved his, his people, and then he became a rebel? Like, I don't understand what in the world, right? That makes sense to us right now. A thousand years from now, that might not make any sense to anybody. That's kind of how we have to look at Revelation and just recognize there's going to be things that the first read, it's, it's going to go over our heads. And we have to trust the Spirit to reveal those things. We have to look at the work, other works of the body of Christ, like this book and other commentaries, to understand some of those things behind the scenes. At the end of the day, John, the Apostle John, is, is first and foremost a pastor, and he wants to help his people overcome. He wants to help the people that he loves overcome. And we saw that throughout these letters at the end of each one. To the one who overcomes, Jesus kept saying, to the one who overcomes, to the one who overcomes. In Revelation 4, we get to see the one, capital, capital O, the one who 
has overcome, who has always overcome, who always will overcome, and is sitting on the throne as encouragement to us to keep striving towards overcoming. So we're going to just look at this line by line and walk through. There, there's a ton here. Um, this could be a sermon series in itself, but I'm going to try to try to walk through it systematically here, and we're just going to go line by line. So uh, Kathleen, if you could put that back up, the, uh, the passage itself. John says, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open. This is fascinating, because twice in Revelation 3, there's a door. One in 3.8, Jesus says, hey, I open a door that no man can shut. He's talking about, he's talking about a door. In Revelation 3.20, he's standing at a door, knocking. So we got this, this kind of thing about doors going on here. I just thought that was a fascinating connection there. And John's saying, hey, one of those doors, it's open, and I'm going to take it. I'm going to walk through and see what's going on. And again, it's another unveiling. It's another revealing of what's, of what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet. That's way back in, verse, or in chapter 1. Uh, I don't know what that sounds like, but it's like a trumpet, I guess. Come up here, I'll show you what must take place after this. Again, the age to come. At once I was in the Spirit. In the Spirit. Now, when we read a passage like this and we see someone was in the Spirit and then they have this crazy revelation about the throne room of God, it can make me wonder, like, am I ever really doing anything in the Spirit? Because I had never seen that before. And, yeah, the, the, the point here, I love what Dr. Tony Evans says, is this is just a command to, to enter the spiritual perspective. That is to see things that the physical eyes can't see. He points out, naturally, John's experience was pretty unique in the fact that he's writing Holy Scripture. Like, it's not, that part's not going to be repeatable. But the idea of just abiding in God, of being able to see and understand his will, even if it's not to this magnitude, that's what Jesus invites us into, to abide in the Spirit, to walk around understanding there's an unseen realm behind the scenes that I can trust God for spiritual eyes to be able to see, and then that impacts the way that I live. Whether I, whether I ever get to, or any of us ever get a vision like this, that's not the point. That's not the end goal. The end goal is to abide in Jesus and walk around with those Revelation 4 glasses on. That's an, an attainable type of goal. I can live like that. To continue on, one thing that, that Johnson points out in this book uh, that I was looking at is there's, there's several prepositions that seem to jump out at John about the, about the throne, what's on the throne, what's around the throne, what's behind the throne, what's in front of the throne, uh, all of these different, different things about what's happening in this scene. And we see that the first one in verse 2, at once I was in the spirit, behold, the throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. This would have been deeply meaningful to John, to the early churches that the other letters were written to, that there is one on the throne. Because to the rest of the world, the throne was in Rome, and the one on the throne was Caesar, and whatever he said, that was what, that was what went down. He was Lord. That's literally what they would say. Caesar is Lord, and that's why the Christians got in so much trouble by saying, ah, actually, Jesus is the one that's Lord. He's the one that's on the throne. And so John gets this picture, this reminder that amidst all the craziness going on, there is, there is a throne. It's not in Rome, and there's one seated on it. It's not up for grabs. There hasn't been a, a, a death, and now we got to see, well, is the son going to become the heir or is someone going to battle him for it? No, God's on the throne, period, end of story, which would have been a great comfort to the early Christians. There was all kinds of craziness going on in Rome in that day. In the 50s, the actual 50s, not the 19 ones, the actual just AD 50, uh, Nero had, had begun 
his craziness and was killing Christians, was feeding them to the lions in the Colosseum. In the 90s, again, the actual 90s, Domitian had started his reign of terror. Tens of thousands of Christians were being killed. All kinds of stories. There's crazy history about what was going on in churches that were conquering. What helped them conquer was knowing that regardless of the circumstances, God is on the throne, and he's sitting there. He's seated on the throne. That's another important detail. He's seated. Johnson points out in his commentary that, that anytime God gives a command in heaven that we see, he never stands up, he never points his finger, he never gives some emphasis. He just, he just sits there and with words out of his mouth, like in the very beginning, what he says goes. That's what happens. That's the type of power, that's the type of authority that our God has. Pales in comparison to whatever kind of power Caesar thought, Caesar thought he had. That phrase at the end of all the, the letters that we have been looking at to the one who conquers, it's called the victory form. Uh, it made me think of a, a thing in football. Here's football analogy number two for those keeping track at home. Um, the victory formation. Victory formation in football is when the game is almost over. The winning team has the ball, and they're basically saying, hey, like, you tried, but sorry. Like, you just you can't beat us. And so we're just going to start the play, and then we're literally just going to take a knee and go down um, because the, the challenge is over. That's the victory formation in football to say the game's over. Well, the victory formation in heaven is not we will be on a knee, in fact, but God's the one that's seated on the throne. That's the victory formation. That's the beauty of the power of God. Two verses down. Let's look at verse three. He who sat there had the appearance of all kinds of crazy jewels and gems and more craziness going on. One thing that's, that's rather insightful and really fun to even look at throughout Revelation is when you see these words appearance, like, or as, um, John is just, he's fumbling trying to figure out how to put words to what he's seeing. And so he uses all of these, all of these similes, all these metaphors. What he's looking at, it wasn't actually Jasper and Carnelian, whatever those are. Uh, it, it had the appearance of that. There was something like a rainbow. Further on down, there's some other uses of that word. So just, just make note of that. Just make note of where John says the appearance of, or it was like this. He, he's, he's trying to somehow convey what he's looking at, and, and his vocabulary, his earthly vocabulary, just doesn't do, it, doesn't do it justice. But what does he see? Yeah, this appearance of Jasper Carnelian. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Other translations maybe say behind or encircling the throne was this rainbow. So we've seen what's on the throne. Now we're looking at what's behind or encircling the throne. The fact that it's a rainbow, this harkens all the way back to Genesis chapter 9 after the great flood and Noah and his family are parked on top of a mountain in their giant ark of a boat and they see a rainbow. And God says, this is a sign of my covenant with you that I'll never again destroy the earth with a flood. And it's a reminder, anytime a rainbow shows up in scripture, it's a reminder of God's faithfulness that he is faithful. And we see this at the throne room in heaven. What's the, the significance of that? One commentator pointed out, it, it's, it's a symbol that he is still faithful. He's always been faithful. He always will be faithful. And as powerful, and we're going to keep looking at the power and the craziness going on in this scene, as powerful as he is, it's safe for us to come. He's the holy one. Holy, holy, holy is what they're crying out. We are not. Last time I checked, and yet it's safe for us to approach this throne. Why? Because he's faithful. He's made a covenant with humanity thousands of years before John was seeing this. And, and that reminds him, that reminds John, it's, it's safe for me to approach. Which is wild and crazy to think about, that we could be the ones to 
approach him. I was trying to think of how does this connect, you know, and picture some type of, uh, of authority figure in, in the world. Maybe it was if you ever got called to the principal's office for something good. Or I know at my kid's school, they have a thing where you can, if you earn it somehow, which blows up the illustration here because uh, entrance into this throne room is by grace alone. But there's this idea of earning at lunch with a teacher. And I can just picture our kiddos at least with just kind of head held high a little bit, at least at this point. They're only first and second grade, so they still think that's like really cool. Um, lunch with a teacher, that like I, I, get, I get to go back to my teacher's room when no one else can. I get access in, in there. We get to eat lunch together. Just a small picture of maybe the craziness of the fact that we get to have access into this throne room before this God who has peals of thunder and lightning and all that we'll get to in a minute. We have access there by grace. That rainbow reminds us that he is still faithful to his covenant, to his people. What's around the throne? Another, another preposition here. Around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads. Why 24? Most of the, the research I came across the last couple weeks were uh, 12 is often a, a common number throughout Scripture. You've got the 12 tribes of Israel. You've got the 12 apostles. Uh, most scholars would say, hey, this represents those two added together. 12 and 12 makes 24 uh, this represents the whole of the redeemed people of God. Twelve before Jesus in the, the tribes of Israel, twelve after Jesus in the apostles. This is just a picture uh, representing the whole of God's redeemed people before him, uh, worshiping. I don't know, you know, I don't know how you actually get that, get that job, get that role. Uh, it's like a super elder, but, um, but uh, go for it if you want. Um, but I think that, that seems to be the, the most logical uh, explanation of what those are, why it's 24. Let's keep going down, verses 5 and 6. Another, another preposition here. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. From the throne, what's happening? All this, just more craziness. Uh, this actually references all the way back to, to Moses, again, thousands of years before this. Let's put up, Kathleen, that Exodus 19 one. Moses, God's, Moses was leading God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery. They were out in the wilderness, and Moses, God called Moses up onto a mountain to meet with him. And this is what it says. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Keep going. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. John would have almost certainly had this scene come to his mind. He would have been familiar with this part of their history. As he saw the throne room in heaven, this, he would have thought of this. And a couple of things probably would have come to mind. One, this is the same God as a good thing. This is the same God that my people have been following all this time. I can trust them because they trusted him. Secondly, there also probably would have been sheer terror. Like, I don't, I mean, I see, you know, thunderstorms. I grew up in Florida, grew up in Tampa Bay, the lightning capital of the world. I've seen those things. But like, to be, I don't, I've never seen a lightning strike right in front of me repeatedly and been like cool with it. Um, and, and John's just sitting there like, look at this. And these elders are just falling on the ground, hanging out. Like, this is crazy. And yet this is the power that God has. 
if we were to if we were walking all the way through Revelation, we would see that as we get into some judgment things, that's the Revelation six through the the rest. Um, there, there's these rounds of judgment. There's multiple rounds of sevens, and at the end of each of those sevens, this lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, it, it repeats through each of those, which is just kind of an emphasis of like, hey, the one who's judging, uh, don't mess with him. And yet again, the rainbow reminds that he's safe to come, and we hold intention, just the sheer uh, awesomeness of God, and yet the fact that we are able to come near to the one who is terribly awesome. So on the throne, around the throne, or encircling the throne, from the throne, before the throne, second half of this verse, before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We've seen some other sevens, seven lampstands, representing seven churches, other, other sevens, that's a, a key number in scripture, certainly in Revelation, what's happening here. The seven spirits of God, uh, this isn't one of those uh, like theological weight. I thought at most God was Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that's three, but Holy Spirit, there's only one, why is there seven? Again, seven's a number of completeness, um, representing that the whole of God's presence is right here in the throne room. If the whole of God's physical manifested presence was here now, we would all be completely undone in an instant. What, not even a question. Not even, oh, but wait. No. And yet in the throne room in heaven, the whole of his spirit, the whole of his presence is there. And it's burning torches of fire. It's, it's illuminating. It's exposing. It's purifying. That's not, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But for our sin and unholiness, enter the lamb who was slain. You got to come back next week for, for that. Or you can read Revelation 5, I guess, if you want, since we have the whole story. But his presence, it's completely there. From the throne coming these flashes of lightning before the throne, the, the fullness of presence of God. Let's look at the next one in verse 6. Before the throne, another before. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This is maybe the piece that, that God met me, God used to meet me the most over the last couple weeks, and he can use whatever he wants for you, but I, this is just what I've got, so I'm going to share a lot on this now, and I'll, I'll come back to it later. I, I think the phrase, as it were, is just funny to me. Um, I try to think, how do I use that phrase, as it were? And I kind of use it as kind of the Jersey sarcasm, like uh, Captain Obvious, uh, like, yeah, of course, my flight was delayed at Newark, like as flights do at Newark. They get delayed or whatever it is. Yes, there's traffic on the turnpike, as it were. Like, of course. I tried to look up, you know, what, what that actually was in the original language, and it's, it's another word, like, like those other ones, like the appearance of, but it is a little different. I think an argument could be made that there's a little bit of kind of a pithy, um, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a sarcastic saying. I'm almost wondering if John's got a little Jersey sarcasm in here, or maybe we have some John sarcasm here. Um, but it's just like, as it were, a sea of glass. Like, oh, of course, obviously. And John, like, that's the one that's obvious to you? Like, none of this is obvious. Don't patronize us here, John. Like, this is as it were, a sea of glass. Uh, none of this is, is obvious. None of this is natural unless we put on the Revelation 4 glasses and we can see, oh, this maybe is the most natural thing in, in the universe, that God is on the throne, that he is sovereign over all things. The sea... People in, in the day that John was writing this, and even much earlier than that, ancient civilizations, the sea was represented absolute chaos. It was a terrifying reality. 
much of the world at the time was around the Mediterranean Sea, and they saw this just big giant body of water, and, and they were fearful, deathly fearful, again, especially ancient civilizations, right? They didn't have, nobody was pulling a, a little Moana and going to go all the way across the sea on that little dinky wooden boat. Nobody was, was doing a perfect storm kind of thing with Mark Wahlberg just out in the middle of, of the ocean to try to catch these fish. Nobody was doing a, a greatest catch or fine, uh, deadliest catch, whatever it is, right? Maybe, maybe they were, but they didn't have the technology that we have today to understand and navigate the sea, which still claims plenty of lives. How much more back then? They feared the sea. It was chaotic. Even as we look at Genesis 1 and 2, the second verse of the Bible, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's this idea that God's entering into the chaotic darkness, the chaotic sea, and he's going to bring order. He's going to bring peace. He's going to bring creation and life to that. And here, in the throne room, before him is a sea of glass. And I tried to think, like, a sea of glass, like, how, how does glass function as, like, waves and, like, white caps in the water and like crystal or they're just like crystals like that seems pretty dangerous I wouldn't want to like step on that and then it hit me a sea of glass means that it's as calm as can be like duh I grew up on a lake uh, going Jalen's not here but I appreciate his water skiing analogy a couple of weeks ago I grew up doing that and my dad would be rolling his eyes at me like sea of glass it, it means it's as calm as can be anytime he would want to go out on the boat if there was the slightest amount of wind he'd be like no we're not going today it's got to be perfectly, perfectly calm. And he would have to get up stupid early in the morning before anybody else got there. And it's like, Dad, come on. This is just sea of glass. It's, it's peaceful. It's quiet. It's still. Before God, what represents to the rest of the world as total chaos, as mysteriously terrifying, it's as calm as can be before the throne room in heaven. That brought me a lot of comfort this week as I thought about that. All kinds of images come to my mind. Jesus with his disciples on, on the boat trying to get across the Sea of Galilee, Mark chapter 4. And he just, it, it's a huge storm, and he just gets up and says, oh, be still. It's almost like, hey, hey, in heaven, talking to the ocean, we don't do that. In heaven, that's not how it is. Be still. Be the sea of glass. That's the power that Jesus speaks into our creation. It speaks into our life. That's what's happening on the throne room there. Another around... We, hit, we had a couple of arounds already, but next one, around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. No big deal. The first creature, like a lion, the second living creature, like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. Let's keep going. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, he already told us that, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What in the world is this? These four creatures. You know, I almost wonder if, like, maybe these were the last four creatures that, that uh, God was going to roll out in creation to Adam. Adam's job was to name all the animals. Maybe these were the last four, saving the best for last. And Adam just was getting tired and was like, you know what, God, I'm done. Bat, cat, rat, we're done. We're done. I can't. I'm out. And God's like, okay, well, no problem. You won't get to see these then, and they don't, they don't have names. Maybe that's why. I don't know. We, we see something like this before. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, let's look at that. Isaiah 6, the first, first six verses there of that chapter. Isaiah was a, an ancient prophet 
um, his writings were most applicable while God's people were in exile uh, from worshiping some of those other gods. And um, he, has a, he has an experience similar to John here. And he writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe, other translations say the hem of his robe, that little piece right at the bottom of a robe, filled with the temp- filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds, the doorframes, shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I'm a, I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And he falls down, falls down before him. All right, so we see some similar creatures here. They're called seraphim, which is a, a kind of angel. A little different, right? We don't, we don't get, and maybe Isaiah and all of his scrambling and falling down before this whole scene didn't get the chance to write down all the details, um, but we don't get the same amount of details of the face of a lion, face of a man, like an ox. We don't get all of that. So, uh, yeah, it can be a toss-up whether these are the same creatures or not. Either way, there's some, some crazy creatures going on. Most scholars, the Revelation ones would say that those are probably representing the whole of animate creation. When you think about those creatures that are described, uh, one even said, I, I love this, uh, the four mighty creatures of creation, uh, the, the mightiest of the wild creatures would be a lion, the mightiest of domestic would be an ox, think about it in a, in a farm, or a field, um, the mightiest in flight would be an eagle, and then the man having dominion over, over all of that. Um, I don't see anything wrong with that, with that interpretation. Uh, I think the idea here is that there are some wild beings here, and they're representing all of creation, much like the elders are representing all of God's people. The rest of creation is here, and they are bowing before the one who sits on the throne, doing nothing but worshiping with their voices day and night, crying out, never ceasing to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever they give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne. They're worshiping, and they've been doing so for a long, long time. And so when we come here on a Sunday morning for a worship gathering, as the body of Christ gathers all over the world on Sundays, we're not starting the worship. We're just joining in with a worship gathering and a worship offering that's been going on for a long, long, long time long before any of us were around, long after we'll be gone from this earth and continuing until one day we get to join in with it. That's a beautiful reality, that it will never cease, that we get to join in and be a part of that. In every circumstance, this is happening. He's still on the throne. These elders are still bowing down before him. These living creatures are still crying out, holy, holy, holy. God's never, never getting up off the throne. He is in control and sovereign, even when the circumstances of life tell us otherwise. The elders, they, they fall down before him. This brings up a, a host of other images uh, back in Exodus 34. So this is a little bit later after Moses had that one experience on the mountain. Uh, he has another experience where uh, God actually 
passes before him. Moses asks, hey, can I see your glory? And God's like, you have no idea what you're asking. And Moses is like, yeah, okay, want to bet? And God's like, well, I'm going to put you in a little cave and cover it up, and I'm going to walk past, and you can just get a glimpse of my back because no one can look on my face and live. And I, I would argue after Revelation 4, okay, I agree. Uh, Moses, don't bite off more than you can chew. And so uh, God passes in front of Moses, and he proclaims this beautiful um, this beautiful liturgy of sorts of, of who God is, that he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, compassionate, and yet, he, and yet he forgives sin, but he doesn't leave those as sinners without consequence, without punishment. Somebody has to pay for sin. That's the lamb who was slain in Revelation 5. And after that, it says this, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. What other response would there be? In Isaiah 6, 5, what we just looked at, Isaiah just is completely undone, and he cries out, Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. He falls down. His eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. There's a beautiful scene right after that. I didn't read it, but you see it there. One of the seraphim flew to me, and having taken a burning coal, touched uh, with the tongs from the altar. The next verse, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your sins are taken away. There's, a, there's again, this invitation to come near, a grace that would cover our unholiness. But Isaiah is completely undone. And, oh, and don't forget that it was because he saw the hem of God's pants on the throne that filled the temple. What other response could there possibly be? Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28. All of, all of Ezekiel 1, actually, go and read that later. Uh, Ezekiel is kind of like the revelation of the Old Testament. It's one of those other wild and crazy, crazy books. And all of Ezekiel 1 is, is kind of and expanded or just adding on to Revelation 4. Many of the same images are there. We even see some of this, like the appearance of the bow that's in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of brightness, the appearance, the likeness. We get it. We, you can't even explain it. And at the end, when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard the voice of one speaking. What other response is there but to fall down before this God crying out for mercy and saying, holy, 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 throughout the scriptures, we see this. Even in Revelation chapter 1, when John first got this vision, as he's just chilling on a Sunday in the spirit, look what happens. When I saw him, this is right after uh, the kind of Jesus description with all kinds of other craziness. You go back and look at that. I fell at his feet as though dead. Again, what other response could there be? Uh, Penn State University is not my favorite athletic department put it very kindly. Uh, I work at, at Rutgers in the athletic department there. If you want to hear how Rutgers really feels about Penn State, come to a home football game and listen to the student section. Um, don't bring your kids. They're not my favorite. And, uh, and there's something that I, that I appreciate about one of their slogans, mostly because it allows me to mentally put them in their place. Uh, in, internally, they, athletically, unfortunately, they put a lot of other people in their place. So when I see the slogan, I at least get to, in my own mind, put them in their place. And they, they have the slogan on the, on the side of most of their athletic uh, venues. It says, unrivaled, unrivaled. And it's annoying because they are kind of good at sports. And it's not totally much of a rivalry yet. We're getting there, though. Um, unrivaled. And I was thinking about that. And, and what, what strikes me about that is, like, they think they are unrivaled. And yet there is only one truly unrivaled one. And he is not in Pennsylvania. He's not in Jersey either. He's on the throne room in heaven. He has no rival. There is no equal. 
He is the truly unrivaled one. And back in this day, they, they used to have the, this was fascinating to me, they used to have these imperial hymns that they would sing uh, to, to the emperors, to, to the Caesar in Rome. And some of the things that they would say, this was like, did they, did they seriously actually say that? They would, this is just worth reading, uh, scholars have done, this is from this Johnson book, scholars have done a great deal of research into the so-called imperial hymns, the songs and choruses sung at political events. Here is a list of the words and phrases shouted to the emperor. See if any sound familiar to you. Holy one, glory, salvation belongs to you, authority, worthy to receive power, righteous are your judgments, our Lord and God, Lord of the earth, Lord of the world. None of us today say that to any any human leader of any kind, of course not. That's wild that they're proclaiming this. And, and yet John is saying, nope, nope, that's not, that's not actually, none of that is true. There's only one who is unrivaled. There is only one worthy to receive glory and honor and power and authority. The elders in the throne room, they know who that is. They know the one who is worthy of that. And they proclaim it. They proclaim it over and over and over again. And the people of God get to hear it and be reminded, nope, it's not this one. It's not this political leader. It's not chasing after this ideology. It's not this here. It is the one who sits on the throne. He alone is worthy of all honor and glory. And we get to the end of the passage here what the elders are crying out. They fall down before the throne, before him who's seated on the throne, worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This, this was wild to me. I don't know what's actually going to happen, all of what's going to happen in heaven, but it does make me wonder, maybe, maybe they're going to pull out the scriptures and just start reading, and we're going to walk through all of it. And Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And after one verse, all heaven breaks loose and just goes completely nuts. Over one verse, like they're worshiping because he created. One verse, and they're going wild. That's how worthy this God is, who indeed has created all things, who holds all things together. By his will, they existed and were created. And so what other response is there other than just to sit before him. As I read through this, sometimes I just got to the end and was like, Lord, I, I don't even know what to say. I could say that, I guess, but like what other response is there than to just sit before him in silence? So I've got a few other things that I want to that I want to share about briefly, but we're just going to take maybe two minutes and just sit in silence because I, I, don't, I don't know. I was sharing with a friend as I was talking about preaching this Sunday, and was like, I don't know, part of me just wants to get up there and say, read this, and then we're just going to sit here for a while. And she was like, well, why don't you? Uh, and so that's what we're going to do. We're just going to take two minutes. Uh, I, would, I would invite you to close your eyes. Uh, you'll be distracted. That's fine. God understands that. That doesn't mean uh, you're not a Christian. That means you're, not, that, that means you're human. Uh, and so uh, as you find yourself being distracted and think about the things you have to do later, uh, maybe just use the, the, wor the phrase worthy or uh, you created all things, a short little phrase like that to bring your mind back. And let's just sit for two minutes in silence before the Lord. would even encourage you to, to maybe hunch forward and have a kind of posture of falling down. We don't have space to just all be prostrate on the ground like Isaiah and Ezekiel, but let's just sit.
before the Lord in a silent worship chorus to join what's happening in heaven. And then I'll share a few more things with us. Amen. Jesus, you are worthy. Here's where I want to uh, yeah, wrap us up today. Um, I want to go back to that sea of glass. That was what, again, how I, what I said God, God most met me through uh, this week, as it were. And um, yeah, I've just been feeling super overwhelmed lately over the last number of weeks. Um, I won't go into all the details. You can think about what that feels like for you and, and how You've maybe been under some stress or pressure, just feeling overwhelmed in life. We've all, we're all coming from different places and have different circumstances and different things. For some, uh, the last summer or even this year, 22, has been harder than others. It's not, the comparison game's not really the point. Um, 22 has been a hard year for us. The last number of weeks has been pretty crazy and hectic as the school year gets closer. Summer leisure travel has ended, and now it's been more kind of work travel. And so I've just been feeling... Uh, the too many things to do and not enough time to do them, both like need to do and want to do and work things, not work things, uh, all the stuff. And this sea of glass was a, a deep comfort to me. Um, I, I think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside green, uh, he makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside still waters. I love this, this whole psalm, but I love that part there especially. And God has used that uh, throughout my life to, to use visible creation to reveal himself as the invisible creator. I remember in college, uh, I was studying for a calculus exam, 
super late at night, as one does, and I was, I was, I needed a break. I still had more to go, but I needed a break, and so I went for, I went for a walk around my apartment complex, and uh, there's a pond there, as it were. All right, I'll stop. I'll stop. Uh, but as most apartment complexes do, there's a little pond there, right? And it was, it was, you know, this is like after midnight in Florida, and it was, it was really hot outside, and it was still as glass. And I remember the Lord brought this to mind. I'm leading you beside still water, quite physically, literally. Here it is. And I was like, that is amazing. I still have to go study for my Calc exam. And I still got to take that thing tomorrow. And he's like, yeah, I know. But, but I can offer you, even in the, the physical craziness, chaos of life, I can offer you a, a deeper peace, a spiritual peace that comes with that. I remember uh, years later, right before, actually right before both of our daughters were born, uh, one, I was, going on, I was on another walk in, uh, around my mother-in-law's neighborhood in Florida. Uh, the other one, I was driving home. Actually, I dropped Allison off at, with Briley. I had dropped her off at the hospital, came home to get the bag, um, ended our date night uh, that we were on, and we came home with a baby instead. And I was driving by uh, the beautiful Raritan River, and in each of those circumstances, I could see the water was still smooth as glass. And I just, yeah, that was just a reminder, talk about... Uh, very chaotic circumstances, having a child and bringing that into the world and keeping them alive. And the Lord was like, yeah, but I'm going to be with you. I'm going to offer you still waters in your heart and soul. And, and so as I walked back through this week and, and got this picture of a sea of glass, yeah, the Lord just brought again a comfort to my heart and also gave me a picture of what's to come, the still waters in heaven, that sea of glass before the throne. I can't wait till he will lead us there. I really can't. This life is hard. And I know, I don't know all your stories, but I know some of you, it's been really hard. And one day there is coming a sea of glass that we will get to kneel before with these elders and these other wild creatures and get to just say, holy, holy, holy God, you are on the throne. You are in charge. I can't wait till he leads us there. But then there's another interesting thing that happens in Revelation much later. Revelation 21 verse 1 this is, this is when the new heaven and the new earth, as it says, are coming. John says, the, I see a new heaven, a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. Right before this, the couple chapters before this, there's some scenes of God destroying his enemies. The enemies of God, the enemies of the people of God, those that would in, intend to do harm to God's people. There's several scenes, more wild and crazy stuff, uh, lakes of fire, very not seas of glass that these enemies are being thrown into. And then we get to this, where the sea, what represents the chaos, something that has claimed many lives throughout history, is no longer there anymore. And so God has done away with those that would intend to destroy us, and then the more natural destroyers that threaten creation, like the sea. He's doing away with it. And it's worth reading this quote. This, is, this was from this uh, Johnson book. He's actually quoting another guy very scholarly, and there's some big words here, but I think it's worth, it's worth reading to make this point. So just hang on through it. The waters of the primeval abyss that represent the source of destructive evil, the possibility of the reversion of creation back to chaos, are finally no more. And so the judgment of the old creation and the inauguration, the breaking in of the new, is not so much a second flood as the final removal of the threat of another flood. In the new creation, God makes his creation eternally secure from any threat of destructive evil. In this way, Revelation portrays God as faithful to the Noahic covenant, 
the promise with the rainbow back to Noah way back in Genesis 9, and indeed surpassing it in his faithfulness to his first creation. First, by destroying the destroyers of the earth, and finally taking creation beyond the threat of evil. This represents the fact that one day, followers of Jesus, we will be there without any threat of harm or evil or sadness or death or sickness or anything else because of the lamb who was slain, which again, we'll look at next week, solely because of what he did and came back to life so that we will beyond death get to kneel with this crowd before the throne in a sea, before a sea of glass. We will get to enjoy God forever as the chief end of life is. And yet, as great, perhaps, as maybe those last two minutes were, or as distracting as they were for you, like, we still have to get up and live life. You, some of us still have to go get our kids down the hall. They're going to be like, what in the world's going on in there? We can't just sit here forever before the Lord. Not yet. We have stuff that we have to do. So what about this present age now? How do we handle all that? I was meeting with a, a, a dear brother, good friend of mine, uh, a veteran of the faith, a Catholic brother on campus over at Rutgers. We have a, a campus minister's prayer group once a month um, for lots of different campus ministries at Rutgers. There, actually, there's a fun kind of history and story for how this church even uh, partly began from that meeting years and years and years ago. That meeting is still happening. And Brother Joe, who has got to be late 60s or 70s, um, just an absolute sage in the faith, and he was sharing some things. He was actually sharing about a 94-year-old priest that he was meeting with for some discipleship mentoring, and, and he, he gave, that priest gave Brother Joe this phrase that he gave to me, this prayer that he's begun to say uh, on a regular basis. Jesus, I surrender myself to you. Take care of everything. And I have it blank there because I started to consider, well, what is my everything? There's lots of everythings that I would fill in that blank with. What is it for you, I wonder? And in, in the last week even of just feeling super overwhelmed and feeling like, God, there's just too much. I, I can't take care of it all. I can't do it. It feels super chaotic. The sea does not feel calm. Jesus says, yeah, I know. I know, but before the throne in heaven, it is. So if you would surrender yourself to me and let me take care of fill in the blank, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. And what a comfort that was to me. Because go, go back to the second, uh, or the first quote that I had, Kathleen, please, the shorter one. Yeah, because again, Scripture never promises that the visible circumstances of life will proclaim the sovereignty of God. The visible, chaotic, wild, crazy, overwhelming circumstances will often call the sovereignty of God into question. That's when we need to put on these Revelation 4 glasses and be reminded. It's not in question. He is on the throne. He is in control. And so as we get ready to come to communion here, I, I want to invite you to consider this, this just one sentence little prayer there. Jesus, I surrender myself to you. Take care of what? What are all the things that are on your mind and heart that you think you've got to take care of, and it's overwhelming, and it's crazy, and you can't handle it all, and you need the one who sits on the throne before that sea of glass to bring a little sea of glass to your life? And so before we, before we actually come to communion to, to take part of this meal here, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the, the wine and juice representing the blood of Jesus poured out for us, I want to invite you to make that list. Just to take two or three minutes, if you actually want to jot it down, great. If you want to just make a mental list or put it in your phone or whatever, I had a pretty lengthy list of things I needed Jesus to take care of. And while I still had to go and do them, th th this is what walking by faith is. 
It's making a list and offering it to God and trusting that we're going to be able to walk in the Spirit to go and handle the things we need to, but trusting His grace will cover all of it. And so make that list and then bring it, I mean, if you want to physically bring it to the table, great, but bring it to the table and leave it here and receive from Jesus His body, His blood. Receive from the one who sits on the throne before the chaos of life and says, be still. I'm going to pray for us and then... um, yeah, I'm going to invite you to take two, three minutes to just be still before you come. You can, you can uh, come when the rest of the band uh, comes up. That would be your cue to, uh, to feel the freedom to bring your list. But take a few minutes to make that list before the Lord. And, uh, and then uh, when you're ready, for those that are followers of Jesus, this table's for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you actually honor God more by, honor this one on the throne more by staying in your seat. Or, goodness gracious, for the first time, maybe you come and say, Jesus, I surrender my whole self to you. I'm, I'm going to let you take care of everything. Here you go and come for the, the first time to this table. But I'm going to pray for us, and then you, you start filling in the blanks there. Jesus, yeah, what else is there to say? But holy, 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 worthy are you to be on the throne and receive all the things, all the glory and honor and power and wealth and wisdom and might. God, this chorus that has been going on for eternity past and eternity future, Lord, we get to be a part of, and you invite us into that. And yet, God, that age is still to come. We, we are not yet fully in that, Lord. And yet you have already invited us in. We get to come to this table here. And Jesus, I know in my own life and my friends here, there's a lot of really heavy burdens that we need you to take care of, Lord. So, oh, God. Making this list is one thing, but then remembering to allow you to keep taking care of it is another. So by your spirit, we need you to keep reminding us that you are on the throne. We need you to keep putting these glasses back on us when we're so tempted to take them off and look through our human eyes at the world around us. But Jesus, you you are good and you have walked this earth. You know our works as we've read about. You are the conquering one. And so we have what we need in your spirit to be able to conquer. God, so would you... Bring to the surface of all of us here, God, the things that are on our hearts that we need you to take care of. And would we experience your your peace as we bring them to you. In Jesus' name, amen.